Hello, my name is Larry Hogan, and I am the host of the podcast, Where Do We Go From Here? Where we take the lessons from the past, compare and contrast with the current environment, but always with an eye toward the future. The object is to challenge you in the space of politics, culture, and spirituality. For these, I believe, are the drivers of our society. Where do we go from here? I am your host, Larry Hogan. Commercial break. If you are or have ever been interested in grabbing a platform that gives one space to express their opinions, challenge the status quo, seek or find your voice, might I recommend the website Anchor.fm. This is the sponsor that supports me and many others who wish to step into the world of podcasting. It is the easiest way to create, distribute, brand, and market your podcast. Anchor.fm, a Spotify company. I know the current and the most the current and most important subject matter today is the coronavirus. That would be rightly so. But having said that, for today's subject matter, I want to focus on women's history. Now, if I was to mention Rosa Parks, Harriet Tubman, Michelle Obama, Aretha Franklin, Serena and Venus, Condoleezza Rice, or Shirley Chisholm, nobody would blink an eye about their importance to history and society. But if I mentioned Claudette Colvin, Katherine Johnson, and Henrietta Lacks, some might stumble. Well, let me share with you each one and their contributions to society. Then, I want to share an opinion piece written by a local student and global citizen in the making, born and raised in Central Florida, who I predict will make a mark heard, will make her mark heard around the world. The world knows Rosa Parks and her story. For those that don't, here's a quick reminder. She is regarded as the mother of the civil rights movement when she refused to give up her seat to a white man in Montgomery, Alabama. She was arrested on December 1st, 1955. Now in the late 50s, segregation was legal in America. In America, Today, it is illegal to segregate on purpose and with intentionality. Even though 11 a.m. on Sunday morning may still be regarded as the most segregated hour in America. But I digress. In 1955's Alabama, as required by a city ordinance, blacks were required to sit in the back half of city buses and to give up their seat to white riders if the front half of the bus was filled. Now let me press my claim. Did you know, nine months before Rosa Parks' arrest, 15-year-old Claudette Colvin was arrested in Montgomery for the same act. The city's black leaders prepared to protest, but didn't. Why? They deemed she was an inappropriate symbol for the cause. Many know one version or other, one version or the other of Rosa's story, but here's Claudette's story. Going to a segregated school had one advantage. She found her teachers gave her a good grounding in black history. There, she says, we learned about Negro spirituals and reciting poems. But it was her social studies teachers that went into more detail. It was in social studies that she learned about Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth. 
On March 2nd, 1955, Colvin and her friends finished their classes and were let out of school early. This is her words in my reading. We walked downtown and my friends and I saw the bus and decided to get on it. It was right across the road from Dr. Martin Luther King's church. The white people were always seated at the front of the bus and the black people were seated at the back of the bus. The bus driver had the authority to assign the seats so when more white passengers got on the bus, he could ask for those seats. The problem arose because all the seats on the bus were taken. Colvin and her friends were sitting in a row a little more than halfway down the bus. Two were on the right side of the bus and two on the left. And a white passenger was standing in the aisles between them. The driver wanted all of them to move to the back and stand so that the white passenger could sit. Now Colvin, she said, he wanted me to give up my seat for a white person. I would have done it for an elderly person, but this was a young white woman. Three of my friends had gotten up reluctantly, but I remained seated next to the window. Now, under the twisted logic of segregation, the white woman still couldn't sit down, as then white and black passengers would have been sharing a row of seats. And the whole point was that white passengers were meant to be closer to the front. Colvin told the driver, I have paid my fare and I knew that it was my constitutional right to remain where I am. Whenever people ask me, why didn't you get up when the bus driver asked you? I say it felt as though Harriet Tubman's hands were pushing me down on one shoulder and Sojourner Truth's hands was pushing me down on the other shoulder. I felt inspired by these women because my teacher taught us about them in so much detail. And yet, I wasn't frightened, but disappointed and angry because I knew I was sitting in the right seat. Now, the driver kept on going, but stopped when he reached a junction where a police squad car was waiting. Two policemen boarded the bus and asked why I didn't give up, give up my seat. I was more defiant. And then they knocked my books out of my lap. One of them grabbed my arm. I don't know how I got off that bus, but the other student said they manhandled me off the bus and put me in the squad car. Now you can imagine how that went. Claudette was roughed up and instead of being taken and placed in a juvenile detention center, she was placed as an adult in jail and remained there until her mother and pastor came to bail her out three hours later. Colvin was the first person to be arrested for challenging Montgomery's bus segregation policies. And as such, her story made a few local papers. But nine months later, the same act of defiance by Rosa Parks was reported all over the world. So did Colvin know Mrs. Paul? Was there any hard feelings or disappointment as to why her story didn't become worldwide? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, Claudette became an active in her youth, met and got to know Mrs. Parks very, very well. Colvin said Parks had the right image to become the face of resistance to segregation. She had worked with the NAACP previously. 
and later on in that same year, Claudette became pregnant as a teenager and would not be the right fit for the role. Her words, they would have focused more on the pregnancy than the boycott. So December 5th of that same year, 40,000 African Americans began to boycott the bus system, which in turn led to form the Montgomery Improvement Association, electing a young pastor, Martin Luther King Jr., as their president. The boycott was very effective, but the city still resisted complying with protesters' demands. One was an end to the policy preventing the hiring of black bus drivers, and the other was the introduction of first-come, first-served seating rules. To sustain the boycott, communities organized carpools, and the city's African-American taxi drivers charged the same fare as the bus, 10 cents for fellow African-Americans. A little over a year later, December 20th, 1956, the Supreme Court ruled that segregation on the buses must end. So whatever happened to Claudette? Well, she moved to New York where she later became a nurse. In 2009, author Philip Hoos published a book that told her story in detail for the first time. As she reflected back, Claudette said, If I had not made the first cry for freedom, there wouldn't have been a Rosa Parks. And after Rosa Parks, there wouldn't have been a Dr. King. And I lived to see that change. Claudette Colvin. Now, second story. In 1951, an African-American woman was diagnosed with terminal cervical cancer. She was treated at John Hopkins University, where a doctor named George Gay snipped cells from her cervix without telling her. Gay discovered that these cells not only could not only be kept alive, but would also grow indefinitely. Over 60 years later, those cells have been cultured and used in experiments ranging from determining the long-range effects of radiation to testing live polio vaccine. Her cells were commercialized and have generated millions of dollars in profit for the medical researchers who patented her cells. Who was this person? Why was she important and what was her contribution to the medical field? Based on the book by the author, freelance medical writer Rebecca Skloot, here is her story. This is the prologue of the book that Rebecca wrote. There's a photo on my wall of a woman I've never met. In the picture, she looks straight into the camera and smiles. Hands on hips, dress suit nearly pressed, lips painted red, deep red. In the late 1940s, and she hasn't yet reached the age of 30. Her light brown skin is smooth, her eyes still young and playful, oblivious to the tumor growing inside of her. A tumor that will leave her five children motherless 
and change the future of medicine. Beneath that photo, a caption says, her name is Henrietta Lacks, Helen Lane, or Helen Larson. No one knows who took that picture, but it appeared hundreds of times in magazines and science textbooks, on blogs and laboratory walls. She's usually identified as Helen Lane, but often she has no name at all. She's simply called Hella, the code name given to the world's first immortal human cells. Her cells cut from her cervix just months before she died. Her real name is Henrietta Lacks. Among the discoveries, her cells went up in the first space mission to see what would happen to human cells in zero gravity, or that they help with some of the most important advances in medicine, polio vaccine, chemotherapy, cloning, gene mapping, and in vitro fertilization. One scientist estimated that if you could pile up healer's cell ever grown onto a scale and given what a cell weighs next to nothing, they'd weigh more than 50 million metric tons. Another scientist said, if you could lay all healer cells ever grown end to end, they'd wrap around the earth at least three times. Now, let me just briefly tell you in layman's terms, exactly what a cell does for the human body. There are about 100 trillion of them in our bodies, each so small that several thousand could fit on the period at the end of a sentence. They make up all our tissues, muscles, muscles, bone, and blood, which in turn make up our organs. All these little dudes make up one's genome. The genome tells cells when to grow and divide and make sure that they do their job, which includes cranking out new cells for healing wounds or replenishing the blood we may have lost. If one mistake is made, one mistake anywhere in that process, for cells to start and cells start growing out of control, one misfiring of an enzyme, it could result in one having cancer. Scientists have been trying to keep human cells alive in culture for decades, but they eventually all died. Not so with Henrietta Lacks. They reproduced an entire generation every 24 hours, and they never stopped. Her cells were part of research into genes that cause cancer and those that suppress cancer. They helped develop drugs for treating herpes, leukemia, influenza, and Parkinson's disease. They have been used to study lactose digestion, appendicitis, human longevity, mosquito netting, mating, and even sexually transmitted disease. Her cells were commercialized, packaged, and have generated millions of dollars in profit for the medical research who patented her tissues. The Lacks family, however, 
didn't know the cell cultures existed until more than 20 years after her death. Donald Decker, an instructor, once said, Healer cells were one of the most important things that happened to medicine in the last hundred years. And then, as a matter of fact, or more so as an afterthought, he blurted out, she was a black woman. Now let me suggest to you, and we'll discuss a little bit later, there is a pattern developing here. No information on Henrietta Lacks, and remember, called that Coven said that she was disappointed and angry about what happened to her with regard to her uh, to her seating arrangements in the Montgomery bus boycott. My final story is on Katherine Johnson. Her story was made famous by the movie Hidden Figures, the real life story of a mathematician, a premier mathematician. She, uh, through a series of events, she was first selected to participate as a flight analyst involving a crash caused by wake turbulence. But before I talk about how she got there, let me back up a little bit. There were positions opening for an all-black office staff called the West Area Computing Section of NACA, N-A-C-A, located in Langley, Virginia. It was a new division that was created. And uh, from there, things started to happen. And hence is how Katherine Johnson became a flight analyst by being a part of the West Area Computing Section. In 1957, the launch of the Soviet satellite Sputnik changed history and Katherine Johnson's life. In 1957, she provided some of the math for the 1958 document, Notes on Space Technology, a compendulum of series of uh, lectures given by engineers in the Flight Research Division and the Pilotless Aircraft Research Division. Engineers from those groups formed the core of the Space Task Group, the NACA's first official foray into space travel. Johnson, who had worked with many of them since coming to Langley, came along with the program. The NACA, which stood for the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, later became NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Catherine did trajectory analysis, analysis for Alan Shepard's May 1961 Mission Freedom 7 flight. It was America's first human space flight. From that background, America's first man-made flight to the moon was made, and one of the most important contributions to that historic event was made by a woman, a black woman at that. In the beginning of my talk, I mentioned the local favor of my community, Central Florida. This involves a local school graduate named Naya Butler Craig. She was selected to write an opinion piece for the Washington Post regarding Mrs. Johnson's recent passing. 
The gist of the article was while attending school, she was always looking for role models. Not only her school and perhaps to a greater extent society, the lack of providing information on black women and their involvement in one of America's greatest accomplishments. Being a space nerd, she expressed her anger and disappointment about writing countless papers about key figures in America's race to the moon, and none of the research even hinted at the fact that a Katherine Johnson and many others were instrumental into the creation of NASA from its inception. Now, I would invite you to read the piece in its entirety by logging on to the WashingtonPost.com slash nation 2020 slash two slash 27. Its title was a 16 year old black girl nerd. It's good that Katherine Johnson is no longer a hidden figure. Now, I want you to give this some thought. I believe Few knew about the major contributions from these women, Claudette Colvin, Henrietta Lacks, and Katherine Johnson. But I can guarantee many more knew about Rosa Parks, the value of medical research, and of course, Nassau's contribution. These three ladies, and there are probably hundreds, if not thousands more, unknown and unnamed. They represent society and what was a missed opportunity because of culture, ignorance, and whether or not we care to admit it, African American women in particular, their prejudices. Economic boycotts, education, opportunities, contributions from everywhere, luck, and good old-fashioned work. Now, I don't want anyone to hear this and think one is more important than the other with regard to women, women of all stripes. I, for one, salute anyone who, in spite and despite obstacles thrown in their way, go on to make a contribution to society, not for personal gain, but because their contributions Make the world a better place. And that is worth saluting. My name is Larry Hogan, and I am your host of the podcast, Where Do We Go From Here?